morning's scripture reading is Psalm 90. You can find the passage, if you're using the Blue Pew Bible, at the end of page 496. Again, today's scripture passage is Psalm 90, verses 1 through 17. Please join me in standing as we honor the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight, are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us once more. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for your holy word. Thank you, as it was just read, we pray, Lord, that you would now bring your spirit, and by the preaching of your word, may your spirit do a work in each and every one of us. Holy Spirit, teach us, but more importantly than just teaching us, may you change us, you transform our thinking and our feeling and our being in the likeness of God. Lord, we thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been here long enough, you know that you are eventually bound to hear from this pulpit another Lord of the Ring reference or an illustration from Tolkien's Legendarium. Well, friends, today is your lucky day because I want to describe for you one of my favorite scenes from The Hobbit. It's when Bilbo Baggins is deep in the caverns of the Misty Mountains, and he is engaged in a game of riddles with a creature named 
Gollum. Now, Bilbo is playing this game with his life on the line. And for a while, neither one is able to best the other. They just keep going back and forth, answering each other's riddles. At one point, Gollum tells this riddle. He says this, quote, This thing all things devours, birds, beasts, trees, flowers, gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones to meal, slays king, ruins town, and beats high mountain down. Now, when I first read that, the first time I I read The Hobbit, I, I thought at this point of probably some mythical monster that he's describing. You know, if you're familiar with The Hobbit, you know there's a dragon at the end of the story. And throughout it, you meet trolls and goblins and all sorts of creatures. And so I'm thinking the answer must be something along those lines. But Bilbo surprises us. When he answers correctly, time. Time devours all things, birds, beasts, trees, flowers. Time gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones to meal. Time slays king, ruins town, and beats high mountains down. Time is a formidable foe that always wins in the end. Kings and queens, despots and dictators, presidents and prime ministers, the most powerful people on the planet have all fallen victim to time. Time is a respecter of no person. Slowly but surely, every single one of us must submit to its power. I mean, we all feel it. Time takes a toll on all of us. As it ticks on, our bodies weaken. They grow more frail. I mean, we look in the mirror and we see the effects of time. We see the presence of wrinkles, the graying of hair, or the loss of it altogether. Time takes its toll. And not just physically. As time passes, so do opportunities. New possibilities within your career or with new relationships present themselves to you. And if if we don't take the opportunity, if we don't take the chance now, they tend to pass us by, often never to return again. Time is a constant source of consternation. It's a source of great anxiety, a source of great regret for many people, either because it moves too slowly or it passes too quickly or because we feel like we never have enough of it or we feel like we're always racing up against it. Time is a formidable foe that always wins in the end. We might as well just surrender to it now because let's face it, no one can beat it. No one can control it. Well, correction, I should more accurately say, no creature can beat it or control it because there is one who can, the great I am. He who is the immutable, all-powerful God of creation. Church, we have been in a series on the attributes of God that we're calling God is. And last week, we, communica- we, we covered one of God's incommunicable 
attributes. Uh, we, we describe there that these incommunicable attributes are attributes that, that are unique to God alone. We said classically there are four incommunicable, incommunicable attributes. God's independence, his omnipresence, his immutability, the fact that he never changes, and that's what we covered last week, and his eternality, which is today's focus. So we're going to follow a similar outline as last week. We're going to begin by defining terms, and then I'm going to demonstrate this particular attribute in the Scriptures, and then I'm going to end by drawing out some applications for us. So if you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. You'll see an outline, uh, and you'll see uh, where we're going to be going in this message. Let's begin with a definition. This is how we're going to define eternality. I've written it for you in your outline as well. You can follow there. This is the definition we're going to use. God is eternal in that he has no beginning or end, nor is he limited by time in any other way. Now, friends, I realize that for centuries people have been theorizing and debating God's relationship with time. Is God located in time, or does he stand outside of it? Is time itself eternal, and thus God lives and moves and has his being in time, or is time part of his good creation, and thus God pre-exists time? Is he timeless, or is he time-bound? Now, theology books go back and forth on this point, and most of the, of the debate is argued on philosophical grounds uh, or even you know, comparing Newtonian physics to Einsteinian physics. It just gets complicated. I mean, you, your head hurts as you read uh, some of these explanations. And it's to the point that most Christians just ignore it. And most Christians just avoid the subject altogether. It just seems way too, too abstract. But friends, I don't think it's good or helpful for us just to ignore these kinds of questions. Because how you answer these questions about God and time will have an impact on your theology. It's going to affect your view of God and therefore your relationship with him. And so the questions I think are worth asking. And I believe that there are answers but I have no interest this morning in espousing philosophy or, or physics, especially physics. I'm, I'm not at all equipped to talk about that. Those disciplines are helpful in informing our thinking, but of course our theology must be based on whatever God has revealed about himself in the scriptures. And I think that there is enough biblical evidence in the Bible to show that God's relationship with time and his experience of time is vastly different than ours. Now notice, look at that definition again that I gave, you, I gave you. Notice there's two parts to that definition. The first part emphasizes the infinite nature of God in respect to time, which differs greatly from us in our finite nature. You see, every human being has a birth date. And all of us will have a date to mark our death. But God, on the other hand, is different. God is eternal, which means that he was never born 
and he will never die. There has never been a point in time when God did not exist, and there will never be a point in the future where he will cease to exist. God's eternality suggests that he has no beginning and no end. That's one emphasis of eternality. Now, there's a second aspect to this attribute. Not only is God not limited by either a starting point or an end point, God is not limited by time in any other way. I mean, just think about, think about us. Think about how time affects us and how it limits us. It takes a toll on our knowledge. I mean, over time, our memories begin to fade. I mean, I can barely remember what I did last weekend let alone what, what I did, you know, some 40 years ago. And because of the constraints of time, I don't know the future. And whatever I can predict of the future and anticipate of the future is fallible. My knowledge base, let's admit, is limited to the present moment and the not-so-distant past. I mean, that's pretty much the extent of my knowledge. Time constrains me, constrains you. It constrains our knowledge. But God is different. Time has no constraints on him. So he knows perfectly what to us is experienced as the past, present, and future. In theology, it's said that God sees the past, present, and future with equal vividness. He sees the past, present, future with equal vividness. That means his memory of every detail in the past is as clear as his knowledge of every detail in the present as well as his foreknowledge of every detail in the future. Because God is eternal, that's why he is omniscient. He, know, he has perfect knowledge of all events, past, present, future. He has perfect knowledge of all things. That's the difference between God and us when it comes to time. The theologian John Frame says that, you know, when we look at time, when we experience time, we see it as a limitation. It hinders us. It frustrates us. But God, on the other hand, when he looks at time, he sees it as a tool Time is a tool that he uses to accomplish his purposes. He, therefore, is the Lord of time. It doesn't constrain him. He's not limited by it. No, God controls time. And we do not. He's in control of it. We are not. All right, so that's how we're defining God's eternality. That's what we mean when we speak of him being eternal. Now, I need to show you this, of course, in Scripture. This is not just a philosophical idea. So turn with me to Psalm 90. A, a look back there as we had just written, uh, read it earlier. Now this is a psalm written by Moses himself. And I wonder if you notice as it was being read, did you notice that this whole psalm is all about time? I mean, it's basically contrasting our experience of time with God's experience. God is eternal Man is temporal. God remains and lasts forever. Man is fleeting and blows away like the dust. Let's just read the first two verses again. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, 
from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So right here, Moses is affirming our definition of eternality, of God's eternality. So he begins by tracing God's existence all the way back before all the generations of man. And then he keeps, he's going back even further than that, going back before the mountains were even formed. And then he goes even further back. He goes before the universe came into being. It's like what Moses is trying to do do here is he's straining to look down the corridor of the past and he's trying to look for a starting point for God and he can't see a beginning for God. And then so he strains to look to the future to see if he can see an end point and he can't see that either. And so he concludes, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You have no beginning. You have no end. You are God eternal. Even the first verse of the entire Bible affirms this point. Genesis 1.1, I think most of us know it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So clearly, Scripture is affirming that the universe has a beginning, in the beginning. But verse 1 implies that God pre-exists that. He, he exists before that beginning. Now, I, I know, granted, if you're, if you're thinking about this, you know, it didn't say, you know, uh, uh, it didn't mention, you know, in the beginning God created time. So I know some of you are thinking, well, that doesn't prove that God is actually timeless or that time was created alongside with the heavens and the earth. But it's hard to imagine what the experience of time would have been like before the heavens were actually created, before the existence of planetary bodies in motion, since our understanding of time is measured by the orbit of the earth around the sun or of the moon around the earth. And so before these planetary bodies even existed, can we even rightly speak of there being time? The bottom line is that God's relationship to time And his experience of it as creator is starkly different than ours. We are creatures who are created in time. Just look at how Moses describes this in verse 10. Look at verse 10. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. I mean, what a contrast with verse 2. I mean, just look at verse 10 describing us and verse 2 describing God. How different is that? Verse 2, God is described as everlasting. And throughout Scripture, we encounter more affirmations of his eternality. I mean, Deuteronomy calls him the eternal God who holds his people safe in his everlasting arms. Isaiah calls God everlasting father, as well as an everlasting rock. Daniel calls him the ancient of days. In 1 Timothy, Paul describes him as the king of ages, king eternal. In Revelation, it records God saying of himself, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Alpha, if you're not aware, is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and omega is the last letter in their alphabet. And so God is essentially saying, I don't just, I don't have a beginning 
and an end. I am the beginning and the end. That, that just blows my mind. Do you remember uh, Elihu, one of Job's friends? It blew his mind whenever he tried to contemplate this, 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 this idea of God's eternality. I mean, in chapter 36 of Job, Elihu says this, How great is God beyond our understanding. The number of his years is past finding out. How great is he? In other words, try as you may, but you can't wrap your mind around God's eternality. It is beyond your understanding. Stop trying to figure it all out and just just stand back and worship and say, how great is our God? Now, we said earlier that God being eternal also means time doesn't limit him in any other way, especially we emphasized his knowledge. So what he, that we said that what he sees in the past and the present and in the future, he sees with equal vividness. And I see that being affirmed right here in Psalm 90, verse 4. Look at verse 4. This, this idea here is found here. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. I mean, you know, if, if I focused and tried really, really hard to think hard enough, I think I can remember pretty much everything that happened to me yesterday. I can go through all the events of yesterday, and I, and, I, and I have a pretty good grasp of everything that I did. But if you asked me what happened to me on this particular day last year, well, then forget about it. I, I, I don't remember what I did last year. And if I were somehow to be able to live for a thousand years there's no way I'm going to remember a single detail of what happened a thousand years ago. But listen to what Moses just says about God. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. That means God can know all the details of all the events spanning a thousand years as clearly as any one of you can recall what you did yesterday. All with equal vividness. In fact, Moses says that to God, a thousand years are, are more than just like yesterday. It's, it's like a watch in the night, which was in those days an interval of about three to four hours. And so just think, I mean, how, how much can you remember about the last four hours? Well, now it's pr pretty early for us, so most of, that, most of those hours you're probably sleeping. So think normally, though. Uh, in the, can you remember pretty much what happened to you in the last three or four hours? I, I think most of you can. You can say, yeah, I, 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 can, I can tell you exactly what I was just doing, or what I, what I even said in the last three or four hours. Well, God knows God's knowledge of the entire past, present, and future is just as clear as what you can remember of the past three or four hours. In fact, his knowledge, is, his, his, his recall is even more vivid than what you can do. That's what it means, friends, for God to be eternal. Time puts no restraints on him, no constraints. It never frustrates him. It is so different than us. I mean, time frustrates us all the time. 
I mean, have you ever wished you could just stop time or reverse it or slow it down or, or may, perhaps you want to speed it up? I mean, when you can't wait for you know, the school bell to ring, right? Or you can't wait for the weekend to come. Time seems to move so slowly. Like, it's like moving like molasses. You're like, come on, hurry up. But on the other hand, when you have that deadline coming or, you know, when you have that exam date looming, time just seems to fly by so fast. And you're like, oh, wow, we're there already? For God, time passes neither too slow nor too fast. The apostle Peter makes reference to Psalm 90 in 2 Peter. And he says, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So what he means is that God is never just waiting around for the seconds to, clock, to count down. And he's never rushed or he's never hindered by the clock in order to accomplish all that he had planned. For God... Everything happens at just the right time, in the fullness of time. He's never frustrated, never anxious. He never regrets over time. He always has enough to accomplish all that he wants. That's what you can do when you're eternal. That's God's prerogative. That's unique to him. So we've defined terms. We demonstrated from Scripture. Now, friends, let me draw out three implications. I want to show you how God's eternality is, first, a disturbing reality, second, a comforting reality, and third, a life-altering reality. So first, his eternality is a disturbing reality, especially for those who don't know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. If you look back at Psalm 90, uh, you notice very obviously that the first six verses are focused on God's eternality. But did you notice verse 7? Look at verse 7. It, it seems like Moses suddenly shifts gears and he starts talking about God's wrath. Now, it seems like he's changing the subject, but actually it's not. He's actually staying on the same page. It's the focus on God's eternality that is what leads Moses to contemplate the disturbing reality of God's wrath. The connection for us is found in verse 3. Look at verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Now that mention of returning man to dust is, of course, an echo of Genesis chapter 3, uh, where we read of Adam and Eve having rebelled against God, having uh, you know, tried to be like him in order to supplant him so that they can be their own gods. Adam and Eve were cursed, and they were told that they will eventually die, that they would return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So this is referencing Genesis 3, and the whole point here is that death is God's judgment against human sin. And since all of us are subject to death, that means all of us are born under judgment. We are all under God's wrath. And therefore we read in verses 7 to 9, For we are brought to an end by your anger, 
By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Now, if that's not bad enough, the New Testament's teaching on this matter is even more disturbing. I mean, we often forget, or maybe we don't realize, that Jesus is the most loving man who ever lived, and yet he spoke more about hell than anyone else in Scripture. And he taught that God's judgment against our sin doesn't just end at our bodily death, at the death of this flesh. He talked about a place called hell, where sinners will be consciously punished for their sins. The Bible describes it as a second death. And the way Jesus describes it is horrifying. He depicts hell as a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the most disturbing thing that Jesus actually taught about hell is that hell will be eternal. He goes on to describe it as a place where, quote, your worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And he also talks about how the unrighteous will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I mean, friends, when you come to think of it, I think eternality is the most disturbing thing about hell. I mean, just imagine standing on on a beach in Galveston. Standing on a beach and and imagine, imagine that one grain of sand on that beach represents one year. And all the sand on the beach represents the length of time that you would have to spend in hell. And imagine if at the end of every single year, one grain of sand is removed from the beach, thereby shortening your stay in hell by one year. It's going to take a long, long time to clear that beach. But at least it won't be forever. At least there's hope that after millions and millions and millions of years, all of that sand will be eventually removed and you will finally be free. You can stay hopeful. You can stay hopeful and endure and wait for that final year. But all hope is lost when Jesus says that one word, eternal. That means no chance, no reprieve, no hope of deliverance. And why is that? Because the righteous judge himself is eternal. There's no hope in hoping that someday his wrath is just going to fizzle out or that somehow he's just going to one day cease to exist and take his wrath with him. Because he's eternal, God's memory of our sins will never fade. There's no hope in hoping that maybe with enough time he's going to forget about what we've done. That's not going to happen. God will never have a senior moment. He'll never forget our sins. That means his wrath can haunt you forever. 
That is a terrifying, horrifying, disturbing reality for all sinners. Now, why would Jesus speak in this way about hell? I say it's because of love. It's because he wants to warn all of us to flee from this particular wrath. I mean, if you saw your neighbor's house going up in flames in the middle of the night, and you're the only one to witness this, wouldn't it be love that would compel you to rush into their house and disturb them from the comfort of their sleep, to warn them of the flames surrounding them? I mean, that's why Jesus speaks this way about hell. Because we're the ones sleeping in a burning house. What we need more than anything is for someone to disturb us, to wake us up from this reality. That's why Jesus speaks with such disturbing language about hell. And the moment we realize the peril that we're in, the moment we cry out, Jesus, rescue me, Jesus, save me, that's when we learn the true nature of love. That's when we see Jesus enter the house and pull us out at the cost of his own life. Here's the point. The eternal wrath of the eternal God can follow you forever with dogged persistence. You won't be able to shake it. You can't hide from it. Friends, your only hope is if somehow that wrath can be fully exhausted and eternally satisfied before it touches you. And friends, that's exactly what Jesus did for us. On the cross, he fully bore the wrath of God and died our death. With his own life, Jesus offered up for all time, for all eternity, a single sacrifice for sins. And now the promise of God is that if you trust in his son, Jesus, you won't face that wrath. You won't perish, but instead you will have everlasting life. Friends, do you trust in Jesus? Have you cried out to him for rescue. If you've never done that, today is the day. You need to wake up to the reality of the danger before you, to cry out to Jesus, and he will rescue you. That's what we're praying for you. So God's eternality is a disturbing reality. But once, friends, once Jesus rescues you, everything is going to change. What once was frightful about God takes on a different reality for Christians. God's eternality now becomes actually a comforting reality. And that's the whole point of Psalm 90. Where do you turn when life is hard? When you're under pressure, when you're under attack? Christians know to turn to the eternal God who is from everlasting to everlasting. That's what verse 1 points us to, right? Look at verse 1 again. Lord, you have been what? You have been our dwelling place for all generations. The Lord can be your dwelling place. He can be your refuge. He can be your stronghold. Why? Because of the fact that he is eternal. That's what makes the difference. If you're in God's arm, you're safe. Of course, 
so long as he still lives. I mean, the only scenario out there where believers would have any reason to fear, any reason to worry, is if our God, our dwelling place, were somehow at some point to cease to exist. Then we'd be on our own. Then we'd be in trouble. Then we should worry. But as Deuteronomy 33, 27 says, the eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. So take comfort in knowing that no matter what hardship you face, no matter how great your enemies, no matter how fierce your critics, you are in the embrace of an eternal God who is upholding you with everlasting arms. Here's another comforting thought. Think of all the times you've been frustrated because the timing of things didn't work out for you. Things didn't go according to your plan, according to your timetable. You thought you'd have a job by now. You thought you'd be married by now, or in a, at least in a serious relationship by now. You thought you'd, you'd have many kids, a large family by now, or you thought your kids would be out of the home by now. Whatever it is, you're frustrated. The timing has been off. But since God... God is never frustrated by time. Since everything happens for him at just the right time, we can take comfort in knowing that his timing is always on. Everything is going according to his plan, according to his timetable. Now, if he were like us, if he were bound by the constraints of time, we would lack all of that assurance. But thank God, God is not like us. Thank God that he is the Lord of time. And for that reason, we take comfort in knowing that everything is going according to time, according to his time. There's one more implication. For the Christian, God's eternality is a comforting reality, as we just described. It's also a life-altering reality. Once the eternal nature of God really sank in for Moses... He turned to God in prayer, and I want to highlight one request of his in particular. Look at with me at verse 12. Look at verse 12. Moses prays, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That's a prayer I encourage you to pray. Because when you realize how fleeting this life is compared to eternity, your heart's prayer is going to be for wisdom. The wisdom to know how to live out your days, knowing that your days are numbered. You know, when you're young, you feel like you're going to live forever, right? It's, it's easy to, to be careless with your time. We waste our time. We waste our days, our months, even our years. We end up just living for this life. We put all of our eggs into this basket, this present life that the Bible describes rather as a mist that appears for a moment and then vanishes into the immeasurable vastness of time. But ask anyone who has battled cancer or, or battled any other life-threatening disease, anyone who has been forced to number their days, to face their mortality, they'll testify to how that experience completely altered their lives. 
They'll tell you of how they now have learned to appreciate every new day. They're no longer taking anything for granted anymore. They're now going to be intentional with their days. They're not going to waste a single moment that God gave them. That's the testimony they'll share with you. So let me just conclude with a challenge. A challenge to number your days by viewing them in light of eternity in light of God's eternality. The sands of time are sinking, my friends. We only have one life to live, and the sun will soon set on it. Eternity stretches out before you with no end. Now, for those who have been saved by the grace of God, you know that your eternity is secure. You know how you're going to spend eternity. But how... Will you spend the short number of years in this life in such a way that it will echo in eternity? How are you spending your days? What are you spending them on? On social media? Playing video games? Watching shows? Keeping up with the latest news and gossip and trends? Teach us Oh, Lord, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That should be our prayer. What is one change you can make this week to make better use of your time? What is one change, maybe in your personal life, your devotional life, or your family life? What is one change that you can make and how you use your downtime or how you spend your free time? What is one change that you can make to make clear that God is the Lord of your time? What will you do with your time that will make all the difference for all eternity? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this convicting text reminding us that you are the Lord of time and we are not. And that we waste our time far too much. And we take way too much for granted. Help us, Lord, to number our days that we may be wise in the way we live out the remainder of our days on this earth as we prepare for eternity. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.